0: 93 by Victor Hugo Part 3, Book 2, Chapters 10-15 July passed, August came. A fierce and heroic wind was blowing over France. Two specters had just crossed the horizon, Marat with a knife in his side, Charlotte Corday headless. Everything was becoming formidable. As for Vendée, having been beaten in large strategy— it took refuge in small strategy, which, as we have said, is deadlier. The war was now an immense battle, cut up and scattered among the woods. The disasters of the big army, called the Catholic and Royal Army, had begun. A decree had sent the Mainz army to Vendée. Eight thousand Vendéeans had died at Ancenis. The Vendéeans had been repulsed from Nantes, dislodged from Montaigu expelled from Touare, driven away from Noirmoutier, thrown out of Collet, Mortaire, and Saumur. They were evacuating Parthenay, abandoning Clisson, falling back from Châtillon. They had lost a flag at Saint-Hilaire. They had been beaten at Pornic, Les Sabres, Fontenay, Douay, Château d'Eau, Pont de Pont-de-Sey. They were stopped at Lusson, retreating at La Châtennerie being routed at Roche-sur-Yon. On the other hand, however, they were threatening La Rochelle, and, in the waters of Guernsey, an English fleet commanded by General Craig and carrying several English regiments mingled with the best officers of the French Navy awaited only a signal from the Marquis de Lantenac to land. This landing might have given victory back to the Royalist Revolt. Pitt was a political felon. In politics there is treason, just as in an ornamental display of weapons there is a dagger. Pitt stabbed our country and betrayed his own, for to dishonor one's country is to betray it. Under him and through him England waged a treacherous war. She spied, cheated, and lied. She was a poacher and a forger. She stopped at nothing. She stooped to petty details of hatred. She monopolized tallow, which cost five francs a pound. A letter from Prigent, Pitt's agent in Vendée, which was taken from an Englishman in Lille, contained these lines. I beg you not to spare money. We hope that the assassinations will be carried out with prudence. Disguised priests and women are best for this operation. Send 60,000 pounds to Rouen and 50,000 to Caen. Barrère read this letter to the convention on August 1st. These perfidies were answered by Perrin's cruelties, and later Carrier's atrocities. The Republicans of Metz and the South were asking to march against the rebels. A decree had ordered the formation of 24 companies of pioneers to set fire to the hedges and fences of Le Bocage. It was an extraordinary crisis the war stopped at one point only to begin at another. No mercy, no prisoners, was the cry on both sides. History was filled with a terrible shadow. In that month of August, the Torg was besieged. One evening, while the stars were coming out in the calm of a summer twilight, not one leaf was stirring in the forest, not one blade of grass was quivering on the plain. Suddenly, in the silence of nightfall, the sound of a hunting horn was heard. It had come from the top of the tower. It was answered by the sound of a bugle from below. At the top of the tower was an armed man. Below, in the shadows, there was a camp. Swarming black shapes could be vaguely distinguished in the darkness around the Tour Gauvin. These shapes were a bivouac. A few fires were beginning to blaze beneath the trees of the forest and among the heather of the plateau, dotting the shadows here and there with points of light, as though the earth wanted to adorn itself with stars at the same time as the sky. How somber are the stars of war! On the plateau side, the bivouac extended all the way to the plains, and on the forest side, it disappeared into the thickets. The torg was hemmed in. The extent of the besieger's bivouac indicated a large number of men. The camp had closed in tightly around the fortress. On the side of the tower it came up to the rock, and on the side of the bridge it came up to the ravine. The sound of a hunting horn was heard again, and it was again followed by the sound of a bugle. The hunting horn was the tower asking the camp, May we talk to you? The bugle was the camp answering, yes. At that time, the Vondans were not considered to be belligerents by the Convention, and a decree had been issued forbidding the exchange of messengers with the brigands. Both sides, therefore, made up as best they could for the lack of those communications which the law of nations authorizes in ordinary war and prohibits in civil war. Hence, there was sometimes a certain understanding between the peasant horn and the military bugle. The first call was only to attract attention. The second one asked the question, Will you listen? If the bugle was silent after the second call, this signified refusal. If it answered, this signified consent, and was the signal for a short truce. When the bugle had answered the second call, the man at the top of the tower spoke as follows. Men who are listening to me, i am Gouge le Bruin nicknamed Breeze Bleu because I've exterminated many of your men, and I'm also nicknamed Imanus because I'll kill even more than I've killed already. My finger was cut off by a saber blow against the barrel of my gun during the attack on Granville, and at Laval you guillotined my father, my mother, and my sister Jacqueline, aged eighteen. That's who I am." I'm speaking to you in the name of the Marquis Gauvin de Lantenac, Vicomte de Fontenay, Breton prince, Lord of the Seven Forests, my master. First, let me tell you that before shutting himself up in this tower, where you now have him surrounded, the Marquis divided command of the war among six leaders, his lieutenants. To Delier he gave the area between the Brest Road and the Ernay Road. To Treton, the area between Larouet and Laval, to Jacquet, known as Taife, the edge of the Haute-Main, to Goyer, called grand Chateau-Gontier, to Le Comte, Crayon, Fougere to Monsieur Dubois-Guy, and all of Mayenne to Monsieur de Rochambeau. And so, the capture of this forest won't end anything for you. And even if the Marquis should die, the Vendée of God and the King will not die. You must know this. What I'm telling you is to warn you. The Marquis is here beside me. I'm the mouth through which his words pass. Men who are besieging us, keep silent. Here's what it's important for you to hear. Don't forget that the war you're fighting against us is unjust. We are people living in our own country, and we're fighting honorably and we're as simple and pure beneath God's will as the grass beneath the dew. It was the Republic that attacked us. It came to trouble us in our fields, and it burned our houses and our crops and riddled our farms with bullets, and our wives and children had to flee barefoot through the woods while the winter warblers were still singing. You who are down there and hear me, you've pursued us through the forest and surrounded us in this tower. You've killed or scattered those who joined us. You have cannons. You've incorporated into your force the garrisons and posts of Morten, Barenton, Toyeul, Landivy, Evron, Tintignac, and Vitray, which means that there are 4,500 soldiers attacking us. As for us, we are 19 men defending ourselves. We have food and ammunition. You've succeeded in exploding a mine under our tower and blowing up a piece of our rock and part of our wall. It made a hole at the foot of the tower, and that hole is a breach through which you can enter, even though it's not open to the sky, and the tower, still strong and upright, forms a vault above it. You're now preparing for an assault, and we, first of all the Marquis, who's a prince in Brittany, and secular prior of the Abbey of St. Marie de Lantanac, where a daily mass was established by Queen Jeanne, and then the other defenders of the tower, including the Abbé Termeau, known in war as Grand Francoeur, my comrade Guinoiseau, who's captain of the Camp Vert, my comrade Chantoniver, who's captain of the Camp de Lavoine, my comrade La Musette, who's captain of the Camp de Formy, and I, a peasant, who was born in the town of Don, where the Moriandra brook flows, we all have something to tell you. Men at the bottom of this tower, listen. We have in our hands three prisoners, who are three children. These children were adopted by one of your battalions, and they're yours. We offer to give these three children back to you on one condition, that we be allowed to leave in freedom. If you refuse, listen carefully. You can attack in only two ways, through the breach from the direction of the forest and across the bridge from the direction of the plateau. The building on the bridge has three floors. On the bottom floor, I, Imanus, have put six barrels of tar and a 100 bundles of dried heather. On the top floor, there's straw. On the middle floor, there are books and paper. The iron door that connects the bridge with the tower is locked, and the marquis has the key on him. I've made a hole under the door, and through that hole passes a sulfurated fuse. One end of it is in one of the barrels of tar, and the other is within reach of my hand inside the tower. I'll light it whenever I choose. If you refuse to let us leave, the three children will be placed on the second floor of the house on the bridge, between the floor where the fuse leads to the tar and the floor where the straw is, and the iron door will be locked behind them. If you attack across the bridge, it will be you who set fire to the building. If you attack through the breach, we will do it. If you attack across the bridge and through the breach at the same time, the building will be set on fire by both you and us. And in any case, the three children will die. You must now accept or refuse. If you accept, we'll leave the tower. If you refuse, the children will die. That's all I have to say. The man who had been speaking from the top of the tower became silent. A voice cried out from below, We refuse. This voice was abrupt and stern. Another voice, less harsh but still firm, added, We give you twenty-four hours to surrender unconditionally. There was a silence. Then the same voice continued, If you haven't surrendered by this time tomorrow, we'll begin the assault. And the first voice said, And in that case, we'll give no quarter. To this fierce voice, another voice replied from the top of the tower. A tall figure leaned forward between two crenels, and the Marquis de Lantanac's severe face became recognizable in the starlight. He stared down into the shadows, apparently looking for someone. Then he called out, Ah, it's you, priest. Yes, it's I, traitor, replied the harsh voice from below. The implacable voice was Simordan's. The younger and less peremptory voice was Gauvin's. In thinking he recognized the Abbe Simordan, the Marquis de Lantinac had not been mistaken. As we have seen, Simordan had become famous within a few weeks in that region, made bloody by civil war. There was no notoriety more sinister than his. People said, Marat in Paris, Chalier in Lyon, Simordan in Vendée. They vilified the Abbé Simordan with all the respect they had formerly had for him. Such is the effect of a doffed cassock. Simordan aroused horror a severe man is unfortunate. Those who see his acts condemn him, yet anyone who could see into his conscience might absolve him. A lycurgus who is not explained seems to be a Tiberius. Be that as it may, the Marquis de Lantinac and the Abbe Simordan were equal on the scales of hatred. The curses of the royalists against Simordan balanced the imprecations of the republicans against Lantinac each of these two men was a monster to the opposing camp, as was shown by the curious fact that while Prieur de la Marne was putting a price on Lantanac's head in Granville, Charette was putting a price on Simordan's head in Noirmoutier. Let us point out that these two men, the Marquis and the priest, were to a certain extent the same man. The bronze mask of civil war has two profiles, one turned toward the past the other toward the future, but both equally tragic. Lantinac was the first of these profiles. Simordan was the second. However, Lantinac's bitter grimace was covered with shadows and darkness, while there was a glow of dawn on Simordan's fateful brow. Meanwhile, the besieged Torg had a respite. Thanks to Govan's intervention, as we have just seen, a kind of twenty-four-hour truce had been agreed upon. Imanus was well informed. As the result of Simordan's levies, Gauvin now had forty-five hundred men under his orders, national guards as well as troops of the line, with whom he had surrounded Lantanac in the Torg, and he had been able to aim twelve cannons at the fortress. An entrenched battery of six on the edge of the forest in the direction of the tower and an open battery of six on the plateau in the direction of the bridge. He had been able to explode a mine, and a breach had been opened at the foot of the tower. Thus, as soon as the 24-hour truce was over, the attack was going to begin under these conditions. On the plateau and in the forest, there were 4,500 men. In the tower, 19 History may find the names of those 19 besieged defenders on posters bearing lists of outlawed men. We shall perhaps encounter them later. To command those 4,500 men, who were almost an army, Simordan had wanted Gauvin to let himself be made an adjutant general. Gauvin had refused and had said, When Lantenac is captured, we'll see. I haven't yet earned anything giving such large commands to men of low rank was a common Republican practice. Bonaparte was an artillery major and the commanding general of the Army of Italy at the same time. The Tour Gauvin had a strange destiny. A Gauvin was attacking it, a Gauvin was defending it. Hence a certain reserve in the attack, but not in the defense, for Monsieur de Lantenac was one of those men who spare nothing— and besides, he had lived mainly at Versailles, and had no deep feeling for the Torg, which he scarcely knew. He had gone there because he had no other refuge, that was all. He would have demolished it without a qualm. Gauvin was more respectful. The weak point of the fortress was the bridge, but in the library, which was on the bridge, there were the family archives. If the assault took place there, the burning of the bridge would be inevitable and it seemed to Gauvin that to burn the family archives would be to attack his forefathers. The Torgue was the manor of the Gauvins, and it was there that all their fiefs in Brittany were centered, just as all the fiefs of France were centered in the Tower of the Louvre. The home memories of the Gauvins were there. He himself had been born there. The tortuous fatalities of life had forced him, now that he was a man, to attack those venerable walls which had protected him as a child. Would he be so impious toward that dwelling as to reduce it to ashes? Perhaps his own cradle was in some corner of the hayloft or the library. Certain reflections are emotions. In the presence of the ancient family residence, Gauvin felt deeply moved. That was why he had spared the bridge he had limited himself to making any sortie or escape impossible across the bridge by guarding it with a battery, and he had chosen the opposite side for his attack. Hence the mine and the sapping at the foot of the tower. Simordan had let him do as he wished, although he reproached himself for it, because his ruthless nature frowned at all those Gothic relics and he was as firmly opposed to indulgence toward buildings as he was to indulgence toward men. Sparing a castle was a beginning of clemency. Clemency was Govan's weakness. As we have seen, Simordan was watching him and trying to prevent him from giving in to that tendency which he considered to be fatal. He himself, however, had a certain thrill on seeing the Torg again. Although he admitted it to himself only with a kind of anger. He felt tender emotion before that study in which the first books he had given Gauvin to read probably still remained. He had been the priest of the neighboring village, Parigny. He had lived in the attic of the house on the bridge. It was in the library that he had held little Gauvin between his knees and taught him the alphabet. IT WAS BETWEEN THOSE OLD WALLS THAT HE HAD SEEN HIS BELOVED PUPIL, THE SON OF HIS SOUL, GROW IN BODY AND MIND. THAT LIBRARY, THAT HOUSE, THOSE WALLS, FILLED WITH HIS BLESSINGS ON THE CHILD. WAS HE GOING TO BREAK THEM DOWN AND BURN THEM? HE SPARED THEM, NOT WITHOUT REMORSE. HE HAD LET GOVAN BEGIN THE siege FROM THE OPPOSITE SIDE. THE TORG HAD ITS SAVAGE SIDE the tower, and its civilized side, the library. Simorden had allowed Gauvin to make a breach in the savage side only. Attacked by a Gauvin and defended by a Gauvin, that old dwelling returned to its feudal ways in the midst of the French Revolution. The history of the Middle Ages is made up of wars between kinsmen. The Atiocles and the Polynices were Gothic, as well as Greek. And Hamlet did in Elsinore what Orestes did in Argus. The whole night was spent in preparations on both sides. As soon as the somber parley we have just heard was over, Govan's first act was to call his second in command. Gauchon, of whom it will be necessary to know something, was a man of secondary order, honest, fearless, Mediocre, a better soldier than a leader, rigorously intelligent up to the point where it becomes a duty not to understand, inaccessible to corruption of any kind, whether of venality, which corrupts the conscience, or pity, which corrupts justice. Just as a horse has blinkers on its eyes, Gauchamp had the two blinkers of discipline and orders over his heart and soul— and he walked forward in the space that was thus left clear to him. His steps were straight, but his path was narrow. He was a reliable man, rigid in command and exact in obedience. Govan spoke to him rapidly. Gauchamp, a ladder. We don't have one, sir. We must have one. For scaling? No, for rescuing. Gauchamp reflected. Then answered, I understand. But for what you want, it will have to be very high. At least three stories. Yes, that's about the right height. And it should be a little higher, because we must be sure of succeeding. Of course. Why is it that you have no ladder? You didn't think it best to besiege the Torg from the plateau, sir. You contented yourself with setting up a guard on that side. You wanted to attack not across the bridge, but from the direction of the tower. We concerned ourselves only with the mine, and gave up all thought of scaling. That's why we have no ladders. Have one made, immediately. A ladder three stories high can't be improvised. Have several short ladders joined end to end. We don't have any. Find some. We can't. The peasants destroy ladders everywhere just as they take carts apart and cut bridges. Yes, they want to paralyze the Republic. They want us to be unable to transport supplies, cross a stream, or climb a wall. But I must have a ladder. Now that I think of it, sir, there's a big carpenter's shop at Jovenet near Fougere. We can get one there. There's not a minute to lose. When do you want to have the ladder? "'Tomorrow at this time, at the latest. "'I'll send a messenger to Jauvenet at full speed. "'He'll take a requisition order with him. "'At Jovenet there's a cavalry post that will furnish an escort. "'The latter can be here tomorrow before sunset.' "'Very well. That will be soon enough,' said Gauvin. "'Act quickly. Go!' Ten minutes later, Gauchamp came back and said to Gauvin, "'Sir, the messenger has left for Jovenet.' Gauvin went up to the plateau and remained there for a long time, looking at the building on the bridge across the ravine. The front of the building, with no other opening than the low entrance closed by the raised drawbridge, faced the steep slope of the ravine. To reach the piers of the bridge from the plateau, it would be necessary to descend that slope from bush to bush, which was not impossible. Once in that moat, however, the attackers would be exposed to all the projectiles that could rain down from the three stories. Govan finished convincing himself that, in the present stage of the siege, the best place to attack was through the breach in the tower. He took every step to make escape impossible. He completed the tight blockade of the Torg. He moved his battalions closer together so that nothing could pass between them. Gauvin and Simordan divided the siege of the fortress. Gauvin reserved the forest side for himself and gave Simordan the plateau side. It was agreed that while Gauvin, supported by Gauchamp, was conducting the attack through the breach, Simordan would guard the bridge with every match of the open battery lighted. While preparations for attack were being made outside the tower, preparations for resistance were being made inside it. It is not without a real analogy that a tower is also called a dove, barrel stave. A tower is sometimes struck by a mine, as a stave is struck by a punch. The wall is opened like a bunghole. This is what had happened to the torg. The powerful punch blow given by two or 300 pounds of gunpowder had made a hole all the way through the enormous wall. This hole started from the foot of the tower, went through the thickest part of the wall, and ended at the ground floor in a kind of formless arcade. To make the hole practicable for an assault, the attackers had widened and shaped it with cannon shots. The ground floor into which this breach penetrated was a big, round, bare room with a central pillar which supported the keystone. This room, the largest in the whole stronghold, was no less than forty feet in diameter. Each floor of the tower was composed of a similar, though smaller, room, with little cells in the embrasures of the loopholes. The ground-floor room had no loopholes, air vents, or windows. It had the same amount of light and air as a tomb. The door to the dungeon, made of more iron than wood, was in the ground-floor room. Another door in this room opened onto a staircase, which led to the rooms above. All the staircases were made inside the thickness of the wall. It was in this room that the attackers could arrive through the breach they had made. Once it was taken, they would still have to take the tower. It had never been possible to breathe in that low room. No one had ever spent twenty-four hours in it without suffocating. Now, thanks to the breach, one could live in it. That was why the defenders had not closed the breach. Besides, what would have been the use? The cannons would have reopened it. They attached an iron holder to the wall and put a torch in it, which lighted the ground floor. And now, how were they to defend themselves there? It would have been easy, but useless, to wall up the hole. A rhetoric would be better. A retorade is a breastwork with a re-entrant angle, a kind of slanting barricade, which enables the defenders to converge their fire on the attackers, and closes the breach on the inside while leaving it open on the outside. They had no lack of materials. They built a retorade with slits through which muskets could be fired. The angle of the rhetorade was supported by the central pillar, and the two wings touched the wall on either side. Having done this, they placed small mines at the right places. The Marquis directed everything. He was the other men's inspirer, commander, guide, and master. He had an awesome soul. Lantenac belonged to that breed of eighteenth-century warriors who saved cities at the age of eighty. He was like Count Alberg, who, when nearly a hundred years old, drove the King of Poland from Riga. Courage, my friends, said the Marquis. At the beginning of this century, in 1713, at Bender, Charles the Twelfth, shut up in a house with three hundred Swedes, held off twenty thousand Turks. They barricaded the two lower stories, fortified the rooms, crenellated the alcoves, buttressed the doors with beams hammered into place. However, they could not block the spiral staircase which connected all the floors, for they had to have freedom of movement there, and to close it to the attackers would have meant closing it to themselves as well. The defense of a place always has such a weak point. The Marquis, as tireless and robust as a young man, lifted beams, carried stones, set an example, put his hand to the work, commanded, helped, fraternized, and laughed with that ferocious clan. Yet he always remained a lord, haughty, familiar, elegant, and fierce. He would tolerate no reply to his orders. He said, If half of you were to revolt, I'd have them shot by the other half, and defend the tower with those who were left. Such things make a leader worshipped by his men." While the Marquis was occupied with the breach and the tower, Imanus was occupied with the bridge. At the beginning of the siege, the ladder hanging crosswise outside and below the windows of the second floor had been drawn inside at the Marquis's order and placed in the library by Imanus. It was perhaps this ladder that Gauvin wanted to replace. The windows of the first floor, called the guard room, were defended by a triple armor of iron bars set into the stone, and it was impossible to go in or out through them. There were no bars on the windows of the library, but they were very high. Imanus took with him three men who, like himself, were capable and determined to stop at nothing. These men were Juanard, called Branche d'Or, and the two Picambois brothers. Imanus took a dark lantern, opened the iron door, and carefully inspected the three floors of the building on the bridge. Juanard Branche d'Or was as implacable as Imanus, having had a brother killed by the Republicans. Imanus examined the top floor, which was filled with hay and straw, and the bottom floor, where he had several fire-pots brought in and added to the barrels of tar. He had the bundles of heather placed in contact with the barrels, and he checked the condition of the fuse, one end of which was on the bridge, while the other was in the tower. On the floor under the barrels and the bundles of heather he spread a pool of tar, and immersed the end of the fuse in it. Then he brought into the library, between the first floor where the tar was, and the top floor where the straw was, the three cribs, in which René-Jean Groelin and Georgette lay sound asleep. The cribs were moved very gently in order not to wake up the children. They were simple country cribs, low wicker baskets that are placed on the floor, thus enabling the child to get out alone and unaided. Imanus had a bowl of soup and a wooden spoon placed beside each crib. The latter, taken from its hooks, had been laid on the floor against the wall. Imanus had the three cribs placed end to end along the other wall, opposite the ladder. Then, thinking that drafts might be useful, he opened wide the six windows of the library. It was a summer night, blue and warm. He sent the Picambois brothers to open the windows on the floor below and the floor above. On the eastern side of the building he had noticed some big, old, dried-out ivy, the color of tinder, which covered one whole side of the bridge from top to bottom, and framed the windows of all three stories. He thought that this ivy would do no harm. He took a last look around, then the four men left the building and went back to the tower. He locked the heavy iron door, attentively looked at the enormous, formidable lock, and with a satisfied nod examined the fuse, which went through the hole he had made, and was now the only connection between the tower and the bridge. This fuse started from the round room, went under the iron door and the arch, wound its way down the spiral staircase leading to the lower floor, crept along the corridor, and ended in the pool of tar beneath the dry heather. Imanus had calculated that it would take about a quarter of an hour for this fuse, after it had been lighted inside the tower, to set fire to the pool of tar under the library. Having made all these arrangements and inspections, he took the key to the iron door back to the Marquis de Lantanac, who put it in his pocket. It was important to watch all the attacker's movements. With his cowherd's horn hanging from his belt, Imanus posted himself as a sentinel in the turret on the platform at the top of the tower. As he kept watch, with one eye on the forest and the other on the plateau, he had near him, in the embrasure of the turret window, a powder flask, a cloth bag full of bullets, and some old newspapers, which he tore up, and from these materials he made cartridges. When the sun appeared, it lighted in the forest. Eight battalions of Republican soldiers, with their sabers at their sides, their cartridge pouches on their backs, and their bayonets fixed, ready to attack. On the plateau, a battery of cannons with caissons, bags of powder, and boxes of grape shot. In the fortress, nineteen men, loading blunderbusses, muskets, and pistols. And in the three cribs, three sleeping children.